For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. The Super Bowl is still a few weeks away, but that doesn't mean you should put down the old snakeskin. In order to promote the Florida Python Challenge, which I'll explain in a couple of minutes, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the NFL, and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission are giving away python skin footballs to VIP Super Bowl guests. Super Bowl 54 will be in Miami this January. Miami is known for many things. Cubanos, Art Deco, fashion, an average elevation of six feet, those little coffees made with espresso and sweetened condensed milk that give minor heart attacks, drag shows, beaches, stone crabs, uh, the movie Scarface, and all that stuff you already know. But here's something you probably didn't know. Miami is the only major U.S. city to be founded by a woman. Citrus grower Julia Tuttle lobbied to reroute a rail line to the then town of 300 in 1876. <laughs> Miami grew like crazy from there. That happened about 44 years before women were allowed to vote in the U.S. Imagine that. Of course, for some of us, Miami and Florida in general are known for invasive species. About 26% of the life that crawls or swims in South Florida isn't native. That doesn't include the non-native plants, well over a thousand of which are thriving in the nearby Everglades. Quick side note for you, there's a difference between exotic species and invasive species. An exotic species is a non-native with minimal impact, something we enjoy and are willing to put up with, like the Chinese ringneck pheasant, Hungarian partridge, rainbow trout in a lot of areas, or maybe even the sika deer. An invasive species is a non-native that we find to be a pain in the ass, something that destroys and sometimes eliminates native wildlife, like the common house cat. 
or more specific to this story and back to that catchy opening phrase of throwing the old snakeskin around, the python. In an effort to curb the spread of pythons throughout the state, the Florida Python Challenge has been held every three years since 2013. There are prizes for the longest, heaviest, and most pythons captured. In 2013, the largest python measured 14 feet 3 inches long. In 2016, 600 snake hunters participated. The winners brought in 33 snakes, including one big lady. She measured 15 feet and 125 pounds, which was the biggest of the competition. The combination prize for most and biggest netted the team $8,000. Though that team's bag sounds impressive, most of the field apparently didn't know what they were doing since only 106 total pythons were caught. Hunters in the 2020 Snake Bowl will have to go through a mandatory 30-minute online python identification training course, as well as adhere to the listed humane means of capture and killing the pythons. One humane means of take listed is decapitation. PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, took issue with this particular method, saying, quote, allowing hunters to decapitate pythons who remain alive and in agony and who will writhe for an hour even after their heads are cut off, is despicably cruel. I reached out to a veterinary friend of mine to make sure snakes do not remain alive and in agony after their heads are cut off. She assured me they do not, and in her opinion, as far as animal death and rights go, snake decapitation is nothing to lose your head over. In all seriousness, I think it is incredibly cool that during something like the Super Bowl, an event that encourages apathy and laziness, the state of Florida is taking the opportunity to promote ecosystem health by highlighting invasive species issues and encouraging folks to get motivated. There are an estimated, and keep in mind nobody actually knows, 300,000 Burmese pythons in Florida. They have no natural predators and do an incredible amount of damage to the native wildlife by eating it. You do not need to participate in the Python Bowl to get in on the action, as Florida's Python Challenge actually goes on all year long. The state incentivizes Python removal, so if you find a snake, kill it, and document the where and when of when you encountered the snake, you will receive a Python Pickup Program t-shirt and be entered into a grand prize, winner announced October 2020. Read all about it at www.myfwc.com. So, next time you head for the Sunshine State, have this question in mind. What are the kids going to remember more? Another beachside stand with overpriced ice cream and obnoxious t-shirts? Or mom, hip deep in the Everglades, wrestling a 14-foot python? (laughs) Make this next one a conservation vacation. As per usual, Cal's Week in Review, this podcast is powered by steel power equipment. They make a wide range of awesome stuff for folks who like to do things with their hands, including these super clean, quiet, nifty little backpackable and extreme situations battery-powered chainsaws that pack a lot of power. This week, we've got the surprisingly diverse sex lives of macaques, what on the prowl means, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. I went to Nebraska to hunt for the first time ever. Took part in the late muzzleloader season outside of Chadron, Nebraska. Had a pretty darn good time. That portion of the state has some really cool spots, fairly diverse terrain, big rock bluffs, deep and varied history. Crazy horse surrendered there and was killed there. All sorts of stuff. The deer had been chased for a few months prior to our arrival and were quite sensitive to human activity, so you really had to be on your toes. 
pretty good snowstorm arrived just before we did, followed by a warm, sunny stretch with freezing temps at night. The result of all this was snow everywhere covered in a heavy, loud crust, especially loud, since the storm seemingly took all the wind with it when it left. In short, finding deer was relatively easy. Getting within muzzleloader range, however, proved relatively hard. As often is the case on these types of trips, some of the side stories made for the best memories. We stayed at the Westerner Motel, about 60 bucks a night for a single room. The Westerner prides itself on Western hospitality. And although the rooms don't have kitchenettes, they don't mind if you cook on the tailgate in front of your room. Spencer Newharth made a couple batches of turkey soup, Sam Lundgren stirred fried some elk, and we, in true Midwest fashion, even got the Weston deep fryer out for something the South Dakotans call chislick, which is cube fried meat served with saltines and toothpicks. I also met a whole pile of cool old ranchers in that area, which I have a tendency to do, at a restaurant called Helen's that advertises steaks and pancakes. We ran into a group of ranchers, average age about 70, I'd guess, who were playing dice for money at 8 a.m. Uh, they seemed to be pretty serious about it, so I didn't chat them up too much. I hopped a flight out of Chadron via Boutique Air, which appeared to be an old private plane, repurposed as a commercial puddle jumper. Chatted with a rancher on board who was very excited. His wife finally pried him loose from the ranch to attend the NFR in Vegas. That's National Finals Rodeo, for those of you who are not in the know. Uh, we got to talking, and I found out that he and his wife both worked in Alaska before settling in Chadron. They worked for an oil company and taught school, and said the key to living up there was to have a plane and snow machines, which they did. I was quite interested in the plane, as anyone with their head on straight has at some point wished they lived in Alaska and owned a plane, preferably with a set of tundra tires and skis. Mind you, this conversation was going on in a very cramped airplane and included three other people who don't fly often. The ex-pilot rancher got excited, started telling stories about all these different places he took his Piper Cub, which made one of the other passengers noticeably uncomfortable. Eventually, one of these uncomfortable passengers turned to the pilot rancher and said, Just so you know, none of this sounds good to me. The pilot rancher responded, You know, that cub only has a top speed of about 80 miles per hour so you can't get into too much trouble with it. Although, I did crash it a few times. Which left me crying in laughter. All in all, real good flight. If you are interested, uh, my muzzleloader hunt ended without a bang, more like a pop and a fizzle. But it was a good time and cool country. Uh, you can look forward to seeing all of it in a future episode of Meat Eater Hunts, which will air on the Meat Eater YouTube channel in the new year. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Just like the importance of a will or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Listen, one of the few things expected of you in life is to not let other people pick up after you. That's why I have life insurance, to make sure my stuff is taken care of even when I'm gone. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash cal. 
Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it, you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Some quick housekeeping. I've gotten quite a few emails from the state of Delaware, setting me straight on Sunday hunting. I had previously included Delaware in a list of states where Sunday hunting is illegal. Well, it turns out that this hunting season, Delaware has allowed Sunday deer hunting, specifically, on private land and some public land. You can get the specifics, and you should before you take to the hills, at www.dnrec.delaware.gov. Need to offer some clarification on heavy-duty 3 mil painter's latex gloves, which is my glove of choice for my little kill kit. Uh, I learned from a listener named Dave that 3 mil gloves are not the same as 3 millimeter gloves. The 3 mil on the box is not millimeter. 3 millimeters is roughly an eighth of an inch, which is a pretty damn thick glove, according to Dave. The 3 mil actually refers to 3 thousandths of an inch, or .003. A mil is one thousandth. That's really picking the ant crap out of the pepper, boys. I'm just kidding. This is a knowledge-based podcast, so thank you for setting me straight. For my weekly call to action, I'm going to land pretty darn close to home. If you're one of those folks who's into trout fishing, then you've probably heard of the Madison River. Folks travel from all over the world to our backyard here in Bozeman to fish this ditch, probably because it boasts some ridiculously high trout numbers, upwards of 5,000 per mile. Thing is, it also boasts some ridiculously high numbers of people fishing for trout. And over the past decade, that number has been skyrocketing. 
In 2011, there were 88,000 angler days on the Madison. But by 2017, that number climbed to 207,000, with most of that traffic coming between mid-June and the beginning of October. Some stretches of the river have well over 100 boats on them per day during peak season. And all this crowding has led to the difficult conundrum of if and how to regulate river use. This is a public waterway that belongs to all of us. We all have equal right to it. Anglers don't want their fishing days limited, and guides and outfitters don't want the state government to cap or shrink their businesses. But the numbers clearly show that we've got a problem. So, how do we control the guest list to the party in a way that feels fair and equitable? Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks is in the process of trying to figure that out right now. They're conducting a survey until January 6th to get as much public input on the matter as possible. I don't have a solution, but I do know that more people who contribute to their thinking, the better chance we have of coming up with a fair solution. So if you fish the Madison, or you'd like to fish the Madison sometime in the future, go to the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks website just to hammer this home. If you like fishing or the incredible freedoms our public lands and waters provide, this does concern you, whether you live in Montana or not. The public comment link will be right there on the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks homepage. Moving on. Japanese macaques are the most northern living non-human primates in the world. If you're familiar with Japanese macaques, and I'm not saying this right, which I have no doubt I am incorrectly pronouncing macaques, uh, I punched it into like the Google Translate thing and that's what I came up with. Knowing sea otters hold hands while they sleep makes my algorithms feel all warm and fuzzy. Anyway, their far northern snowy habitat has also earned them the nickname snow monkeys. These are the cute, brown-furred, red-faced monkeys that nature shows always feature grooming each other nipple-deep in snowbound hot springs. What isn't shown, or necessarily cute, depending on who you are, I guess, is the fact that adolescent female macaques have sex with adult male cicadeer deer called stags. Now, this sexual behavior consists of the adolescent females jumping up on the stag's back and performing some pelvic thrusts. The stag, in some cases, got a few parasites picked off of him in return, although it would be hard to say that's what the stag expects. Just take a minute and get over yourselves. It's damn near 2020. We all know by now that sex isn't always done with reproduction in mind. If it were, I probably wouldn't be here. That may be unfair. Or inaccurate. Let me back up. If you are to take my three sisters and me as a sample set, I'm willing to bet that if reproduction were the primary goal, at least one of us wouldn't be here. That is to say, sex isn't always done with the intention of population increase. If that anecdotal evidence isn't enough for you, non-reproductive sex has been documented in all types of animals, from penguins to brown bears. The reason the Japanese macaque sex scene is being documented now is simply that this may be the first documented case of non-human primates having sex with non-primates in the wild. This group of macaques has been observed for a very long time, and this deer-mounting behavior has just recently started to occur. One theory goes that this could be a form of safe sex for the young females, as they are not of breeding age, and sex with a male macaque could be harmful to them. A recent study in the journal Archives of Sexual Behavior also noted that only the mature Sika stags tolerate this behavior. The females and young males did not. The researchers attributed this simply to the fact that older stags were more docile. How's that for monkey business? Sticking with the things we do for love desk, 
uh, Indian tiger went on an 800-mile walkabout, the longest ever recorded for any of India's big cats. Adult males can attain weights beyond 500 pounds, with the largest over 700. The two-and-a-half-year-old male that went on the long trek dispersed from the Tepeshawar Wildlife Sanctuary and over the course of five months of wandering through the jungle and agricultural areas where he picked off a few cattle, eventually ended his trek at another wildlife sanctuary in Maharashtra, approximately 186 miles from his start as the crow flies. Tepeshawar Sanctuary is home to a dominant male, which left the young tiger little chance of finding a mate in his home range. The need to establish his own hunting territory, as well as finding potential females, is the likely reason for his trek. That's what they mean by being on the prowl. (laughs) Enough about cats. We're moving on to trustworthy, helpful, and reliable creatures. Dogs. Dogs, the obviously superior pet choice, can smell diseases like avian bird flu. Researchers and biologists from Colorado State University, the National Wildlife Research Center, Idaho Fish and Game, and local sportsmen collaborated in an effort to train dogs to detect avian influenza in waterfowl this past week in Idaho. Hunter-harvested birds were a common source of testing for early detection of bird flu up until 2010, according to the USGS. Bird flu outbreaks and domestic fowl in 2014 and 2015 called for the killing of over 5 million birds in the U.S., These researchers hope to train dogs to detect the disease with the idea that early detection might help prevent such large-scale impacts on domestic fowl as well as mitigate the human disease risk. There have been 1,568 confirmed human cases and 616 deaths worldwide from the H7N9 strain of bird flu. That's since 2013. Dogs have been trained to detect malaria, cancer, diabetes, and tuberculosis in humans. Those are good boys. Jumping over to our international desk, Peter O'Halloran was snorkeling about 400 meters from shore off Australia's Northwest Cape when he felt something come up and bite his arm and give him a good shake. The 57-year-old O'Halloran then swam for shore, drove himself to the hospital, received immediate care for the shark bite that, quote, goes through the meat and took off a bit of bone. Then he hopped a domestic flight for surgery. The type of shark doing the biting is unknown, but I just wanted to include this to say, Mr. O'Halloran, I like your style. A study out of Hebrew University and the Schönbrunn Zoo in Vienna revealed a couple of very interesting things about giant tortoises. The giant tortoise can weigh up to 900 pounds and measure about four and a half feet in length. Although giant tortoises were widely distributed prior to human proliferation, our ancestors couldn't resist over-harvesting these slow-moving mounds of meat. A famous example from the U.S. came out of a sinkhole called Little Salt Spring in Florida, complete with a possible spear between its lower plate and carapace, dated to about 12,000 years ago. Now, however, there are only three groups of giant tortoises, two of which are distinct, the Aldabra Atoll and Frigate Islands and the Seychelles being one distinct group and the Galapagos tortoises being the other. Aside from being slow-moving and apparently easy to kill with a stick, the giant tortoises had a few other things going against them by the time pirates and whalers crossing the oceans on ships came along. The tortoises can survive for a year without food or water, making them an ideal sort of livestock to stuff into a ship's hold. For sailors running short on water, the tortoise's neck stores drinkable water, which could be used as an emergency reserve. Also, their meat and oil was apparently delicious. 
The Galapagos and Aldabra tortoises do not hit sexual maturity until 30 years of age, at which point female tortoises may only lay one clutch of up to 24 eggs per year. Turtle eggs are soft and are buried relatively shallow, making them an easy meal for all the introduced rats and dogs that came off the ships of explorers like Darwin, whalers, merchants, and buccaneers. I like turtles. All of these factors led to the wholesale decimation of giant tortoises, including the extinction of four species known in modern times. At the beginning of this year, we did get one species back, so to speak, that was previously thought to be extinct, the Fernandina giant tortoise, a 100-year-old female, was found on the 234-square-mile Galapagos Island. The last sighting had been recorded in 1906. Although not necessarily a swimmer, the giant tortoise can float with its head stretched high above the waves, which is how the species is thought to have distributed itself. A slow but apparently effective method of transoceanic tortoise dispersal. In 2004, an Aldabra tortoise covered in barnacles was found walking ashore in Kimbiji, Tanzania. The tortoise traveled 435 miles as the crow flies. Who knows how far that thing actually plodded along before washing ashore. This flies in the face of past theories of tortoise dispersal. Basically, that this big bulky critter that moves really slow couldn't have gotten all the places it's been found meaning that people had to move them there for a means of future food, or that a faster-moving turtle then evolved to a tortoise wherever they're found now, or possibly that the tortoises have been around long enough to where they actually just hitched rides on moving tectonic plates. Either way, very cool critter, and the aforementioned research makes them even more so. The authors found that tortoises were able to be trained to bite the same color ball, blue, green, or yellow. When tested three months later, the tortoises remembered their training and bit the appropriate ball. When tested nine years later, the tortoises again remembered their appropriate color. What's more, the authors found that tortoises that were trained individually took longer to learn than tortoises that were trained in a group, suggesting that tortoises learn from each other. Some tortoises in captivity have survived beyond 200 years. So the next time you think, I think he remembers me, you may be right when it comes to giant tortoises anyway. That's all I've got for you this week. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, share the wealth. Let me know what I've got right and what I've got wrong at askcal at themeateater.com. That's A-S-K-C-A-L at themeateater.com. And leave me a review by hitting that furthest right-hand star. Thanks for listening. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules 
from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.